Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The first week of 2023 saw American democracy's ongoing crisis reach a new level of farce and danger. As the Republican majority in the House of Representatives struggled to agree on who should be Speaker of the House, the choice of 90% of the Republican representatives, or caucus, Kevin McCarthy, could not get the necessary votes because of his own party's rebels. Somewhere between the 11th and 12th ballots, I spoke with Norman Ornstein, emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Norm Ornstein arrived in Washington in the early 1970s, a freshly minted PhD in political science, and has been studying the workings of Congress ever since. He knows as much about the Republican Party as anyone, and is the perfect person to talk to in writing the first rough draft of this week's event, but also the decades-long history of how the Republican Party became what it has become. The American Enterprise Institute is considered a conservative think tank, but Ornstein is not an ideologue, except of the center. But terms like conservative and centrist have become unmoored from their traditional definitions, as the Republican Party has become unmoored from its own history, and frankly, just common sense. I began by reminding Norm Ornstein that the Republican spectacle reaching its climax in the House of Representatives was taking place on the second anniversary of the assault on the Capitol by an insurrectionist mob encouraged by former President Donald Trump. This is a historic day, of course, to paraphrase or take a phrase from Franklin Roosevelt. It's a day that will live in infamy. We had a violent insurrection. We had many members of Congress aiding and abetting, possibly helping to plan this violent insurrection. One of the things that's been most striking to me today is to watch some of those same members get up on the House floor and congratulate themselves for being American patriots, talk about how wonderful and sterling is the character of some of these people. And keep in mind that Many of those insurrectionists now support Kevin McCarthy uh, for Speaker of the House, while many others are opposing him. Uh, that is in part about personality. Uh, it's in uh, part about uh, personal aggrandizement. But it's a reflection of where we are. And I've been frustrated today to some degree, hoping that one or two Republicans, but certainly a bunch of Democrats would call them out on this. This morning, January 6th, one of the first Republicans who spoke, who was uh, putting back into nomination for the 11th vote uh, for Speaker, uh, which Kevin McCarthy has now lost what will be the 11th vote, but this morning said, let's give a shout out to the Capitol Police who protect us all the time. And all the Republicans uh, stood up and applauded, including many of those who had undercut the Capitol Police, which led to five deaths and a lot of extremely serious injuries. And the Capitol Police who were there on the barricades uh, hold them in contempt, although they still have to protect them. But it was a level of hypocrisy that was, I can't say astonishing because it's now fairly predictable. But that's all where we are today, or at least a portion of where we are today. And I think the more significant element here, we're all transfixed in the United States, and I suspect in many other places, 
with what uh, is being called sometimes directly, sometimes euphemistically, a shit show, which is what it is, a terrible reflection on the state of American democracy. Ultimately, probably by the middle of next week, we're going to have a Speaker of the House and the House itself will convene. But that's when the really difficult part begins, because it's going to be a very slender Republican majority, but a majority with no positive agenda, no substantive agenda. And as these members have gotten up to talk uh, about how we need to confirm Kevin McCarthy so we can get on with the business of governing, the Republican Party is not a party that can govern anymore. It's a cult. And what we've seen these last few days, of course, is a small number of members, the 90% of Republicans who want to just get on with it and pick Kevin McCarthy, complaining about the 10%, the 20 who uh, would not. But of course, when we get back to the business of actually having a house, it's not just the 10%, but a sizable share of those who are supporting Kevin McCarthy, who are going to pull the party towards an even more reckless right wing approach to governance. Well, that's exactly exactly what I want to ask you about is that it seemed to me that if, if there was a real concern on the Republican side to avoid this shit show, to uh, just to avoid, you know, at a time when democracy, particularly American democracy and the ideals of it are actually in retreat around the world, that this deliberative body is incapable of behaving like adults or in a democratic fashion. It seems to me extraordinary that there weren't even 15 members to go and talk to democratic leadership and say, look, we have to avoid this. Do these guys really believe the stuff they say? You observe it every day. You live with this every day in your city. I'm cynical about politicians. I assume they say one thing for the public and they say one thing in private. But I get the sense some of these guys actually believe what they say. Uh, definitely. Um, you know, uh, keep in mind a couple of things uh, in terms of why we didn't get a dozen or so doing this. Um, 10 Republicans, after the violent insurrection, voted for the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And remember, many of those who voted against that impeachment were in fear for their lives. Uh, some of them soiled their own pants while they were there on the floor in the Capitol, thinking that they were going to be overrun by people who would kill them. And then they came back and voted uh, that Joe Biden had not won the election, and uh, none of them uh, supported impeaching the man who had created this set of conditions, who, you know, to be blunt, would have been delighted if some of them had been killed and giving him the ability to declare martial law and retain power. Uh, the 10 who did, eight of them are gone. Only two are back in the House of Representatives. One of them I just uh, was on a panel with last week, um, a, an extremely conservative uh, guy from uh, South Carolina, had served 10 years in the House, was a rising star on the Ways and Means Committee, voted with Donald Trump on everything, on the tax cuts, on the border, on repealing uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and so on. 
but he voted to impeach Trump because he believed that we need to protect the Constitution. He was challenged in a primary by a Trumpist, and he ended up with 25% of the vote. He is no longer in Congress. That's a message that's been sent out there. Fred Upton, a Republican from Michigan, moderate conservative, uh, voted for impeachment. He and his wife got credible death threats. He retired, wasn't worth it anymore. So to be blunt about it, Michael, the Republican Party in the House now is broadly consists of two groups, radicals, most of them insurrectionists, and cowards. And this is what happens when you have a traditional party that morphs into a cult. Because in a cult, the fear of being excommunicated or shunned or threatened is overpowering. And I, you know, when Liz Cheney, one of those who voted for impeachment, who got trounced in a primary, uh, heroic in so many ways, when she said, after she spoke up against Trump and against uh, the insurrection, that a hundred of her colleagues had come up to her and said, Liz, you're right, but we just can't do this, that that's accurate. And it's tragic. Some of them, if they were able to get into a time machine and be transported back 20 years, would be responsible, problem-solving, quite conservative members of the House. Now they don't behave that way. And, uh, you know, I take it a little bit further. The Freedom Caucus, which is the most radical group, created in 2015 because the then existing right-wing caucus called the Republican Study Committee, which had at that point, most of the Republicans in the House as members, because the right-wing caucus wasn't right-wing enough. Now there are formally 40-some members. 20 of them or thereabouts are opposing McCarthy. 20 of them are supporting McCarthy. They're not supporting McCarthy because they believe he would be a responsible governing speaker. Uh, they're supporting McCarthy in some instances, like the infamous Marjorie Taylor Greene, because McCarthy promised her the moon and the stars in terms of committee assignments and other sinecures. Jim Jordan, the same, uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee when they get underway. But others are supporting him because they know that he is so weak and feckless that they will have their way with him, that they can intimidate him, and that, that the threat that they will remove him from the speakership will let them get whatever they want. And that's the world we live in now. The 20 who are opposing McCarthy are doing so in significant part because they have contempt for him because of his weakness. Because here's a man who, on January 6th, called Donald Trump and demanded that he stop the madness and bring in the National Guard and the police, went on the floor of the House a couple of days later to denounce Trump for his part in this, and then two weeks after that went down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss Trump's ring. Uh, that's not a sign of having any principles. And they want somebody who has principles, even if he would do whatever they wanted. And it's just a very bad situation. And of course, we're in a situation where whoever does become speaker, we're going to end up with mayhem. Hold that image of mayhem for a moment. FRDH podcast is completely funded by you, the listener. 
please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation so I can keep the podcasts coming. Now, back to my conversation with Norman Ornstein. You, you've used the word cult a couple of times, and, and I'm inclined to agree. There, there is something cult-like, and cults have a needle leader, a guru figure of some kind, and, and I suppose to, that it's clearly the role that Donald Trump has played since he came down the gold escalator in Trump Tower in 2015. But I want to go back further than that, because it seems to me that the the Republican Party in Washington has been headed in this direction from long before, I mean, Donald Trump was even featuring on the pages of the New York Post as a rich young playboy around New York. Please correct me. My own impression is that the timeline is uh, Richard Nixon is forced to resign in 1974. A certain younger generation of conservative, which is a word that I think has changed meaning as much as the word liberal has, is offended and upset. And it took two electoral cycles for them to start arriving in Congress. Newt Gingrich, for example, ran in 1976, I think, and he lost. And then in 1978, he was finally elected as a congressman and was not content to wait his turn which had always been part of, which had been for so long, the, the way things worked in Washington. You know, you, you get elected, you're a freshman, you get elected again, then you start getting some better committee assignments, and you can build your power base. What happened from the 1970s to get the Republican Party to the point where it is, as you say, a cult? Uh, I'm going to take it back even further, Michael because the seeds of this go back much further. <clears throat> I would say at least uh, to the time when Franklin Roosevelt got elected and we had a backlash from the right. We had the precursor of Tucker Carlson, somebody who no doubt Rupert Murdoch would have given uh, a, a primetime showcase if he were still alive, Father Coughlin, who was a radio star who preached racist, anti-Semitic, right-wing uh, tripe, um, but had a huge following. The underlying racism and radical approach to policy was there, but it was uh, suppressed to a significant degree. We saw it play out in bitterly contested primary or nomination contests for president. The uh, darker right-wing led by Robert Taft of Ohio, beaten back in the uh, 1940s by Wendell Wilkie um, uh, in particular, and didn't mean that they had any great success. Now, when Nixon became president in 1968, running against not just Hubert Humphrey, but George Wallace, Nixon ran on a law and order platform, embracing what strategist Kevin Phillips called the Southern strategy. And what Nixon realized, what the Republican Party realized at that point was that the solidly democratic South, dominated by conservative rural people who were a major part of the legislature, whose goal was to suppress African-American political power, that that was changing. 
It had begun to change in 1964 when Barry Goldwater, who got trounced by Lyndon Johnson, still won several Southern states because he opposed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Nixon exploited that and we began to see, of course, the evolution of the South, but it created these forces that were darker forces that began to become more dominant in American politics. Ronald Reagan exploited them when he won in 1980, even if he governed more pragmatically, but those forces became more of a dominant picture. But you are accurate in saying that before Reagan came in, two years before, we had Newt Gingrich. Now, I will tell you that I went to the American Enterprise Institute part-time as an adjunct in 1978. And my friend and colleague at the time, Tom Mann, and I, as our first project, got several incoming freshman members of the class of 1978 to agree to do regular, off-the-record, intimate dinners to just carry through the first two years uh, that they were in the house. We had quite a remarkable group of people besides Newt Gingrich, and he had actually run twice before, 1974 and 1976, before finally prevailing in 1978, beating a Democrat in a district that had long been in the hands of Democrats, and it was part of the change in the South. Newt had been an obscure history professor at a small college in Georgia. We had Dick Cheney, fresh off being the president's chief of staff for Gerald Ford, went back to Wyoming and won a seat in the House. Geraldine Ferraro of New York, who subsequently, of course, became the vice presidential nominee under Walter Mondale in 1984. A heavyweight group of people. Newt dominated the conversation. He came in with a full-blown theory and strategy and tactics to do what seemed impossible at the time, to break what was then a 24-year stranglehold on power that Democrats had in the House. And the way to do it was to nationalize a congressional election, take it away from individual members running as individuals, often running against whatever trends there were in our politics, take it away from their ability to use their incumbency and name recognition, money advantage to win, and convince a majority of Americans that it was so corrupt and so awful that anything would be better and that they would unite to throw the ins out and bring the outs in. He tribalized our politics as a consequence, took him 16 years, and it took a Democratic president and the backlash that often happens in midterm elections, 40 years of power for Democrats continuously changed in 1994. Newt brought in a group of people who were radically anti-government, anti-institutional. Newt thought that he could blow up the house and then recreate it in his image. And instead, he had a group of progeny who wanted to continue to blow things up. But along the way, he unleashed this tribalism and exploited the underlying racism. And he was helped by another phenomenon which is the Reagan administration in our Federal Communications Commission eliminated what was called the Fairness Doctrine, which had applied over the time we had electronic media going back to the 1930s to television, radio, 
And it said, you got to be fair. If you present a political point of view on air, you have to balance it with the opposing point of view. When they got rid of that, it unleashed the beginnings of genuine tribal radio where you could blast one perspective and build an audience. Rush Limbaugh had been a noontime talk show host in Sacramento, California. When this happened, he moved to New York, went national and became a star. And tribal media continued us along this trend. You could then fast forward to the development and expansion of social media and conspiracy theories and all of that long before Donald Trump, Trump was an accelerant in this process, created a radicalized party, a party that became more radical, even though there were still a lot of figures who were mainstream in a a number of different ways and institutionalists. Uh, And what Trump did was to accelerate the trend to create a full-blown cult and unleash some of the worst and most pernicious forces in society and normalize the behavior helped by a press corps, a mainstream press corps that doesn't know how to handle abnormal behavior. They try to. Well, that, that's very interesting. You, 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 you skipped. You've already skipped two questions ahead because um, I was go- I was going to ask uh, and I'm going to come back to the point about the press because I, I have my my own deep problems with my colleagues in Washington. But I just want to ask you a personal question. You and and your colleague Tom Mann hosted these dinners. At what point did you realize that national politics, particularly in the House of Representatives, was careering off course? So what I would say is, when Dick Cheney was in the House, and he became the whip, he was a very constructive member. And one of his closest friends was Tom Foley, the Democratic Speaker of the House. Cheney became a member of what was known as the Wednesday Group, which was the more moderate Republicans, a few conservatives, but their whole focus was on solving national problems and finding ways to work across the aisle to make good policy. I would go to their retreats and uh, often spoke at them. I could give you a list of I mean, to be frank, more than 100 Republicans in Congress that I worked with on a whole host of issues, many of them related to reforming all of our institutions uh, with whom I was close. Uh, In 2006, Tom Mann and I wrote a book called The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track. And in that book, we lamented the decline of Congress the demise of what we call the regular order, the norms and the rules, uh, the way you're supposed to operate in a legislature, especially in a Congress. And we saw blame on both sides. On one point, Gingrich was somewhat accurate, which is, I believe it's a reality that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 40 years in the majority and Democrats had grown both complacent, arrogant, and not a little corrupt. Uh, It was their candy store. So both parties had real issues. But by 2012, when we wrote the book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, and accompanied uh, on its publication date by a, a long article, an excerpt in the Washington Post Outlook section, which our editor uh, titled, Let's Just Say It, The Republicans Are the Problem. 
that we had come inexorably and sadly to the conclusion that one party had gone completely off the rails. And we referred to the Republican Party as an insurgent outlier, dismissive of facts and science and history in the regular order, contemptuous of the opposition. It was in a very different position. And we took a lot of heat for that, including from a lot of our former friends, but it was a reality. And this was really, I think, in many ways, an emperor has no clothes moment. We viewed as nonpartisans were saying something that was evident, but nobody was talking about it. Having said that, I knew it would get worse. In fact, when we did a paperback version of our book a year later, I got the title changed to it's even worse than it was. Obama's presidency accelerated the the worst and darkest trends uh, in all of this. The Republicans losing everything in 2008, the House, the Senate by wide margins and the presidency made them double down on radicalism and obstructionism. It had worked for Gingrich in 1994. It worked for them uh, again in those midterms. But it's not just Trump. It's also Rupert Murdoch, who basically fanned a lot of these flames with Fox and uh, with Roger Ailes uh, contributing mightily along the way. It's Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society here who transformed the judiciary uh, into one where our Supreme Court now is dominated by radicals who are contemptuous of uh, the precedents and of the legislature, rewrite the laws when they don't like them and are perfectly proud to do it because as the Sam Alito uh, justice fundamentally said when he gave a speech in Rome, we got the votes tough. Uh, There are a lot of people who've contributed to this. Mitch McConnell had a lot to do with blowing up the norms of the Senate, which actually enabled more radical members to get, get more traction. But it's a sorry place where we are. And you're right that a cult has a cult leader, but cults lose leaders. Sometimes they develop new ones. Other times they still go on as cults for a significant period of time. And I think Trump's influence is waning, although he still has a very solid core of support among base Republicans. But the cult and the Trumpist element of it are not going away. If you're the Democrats, the way the Democrats have have dealt with being seriously defeated across the board is they examine what their policies were. They say, well, maybe we need to be a little less FDR, New Deal revivalists, because the Democrats really actually got to win to do anything. These guys, when they lose, they don't seem to pay a price. They don't pay a price in terms of money. A lot of the... uh, instant analysis of this week is that it doesn't matter to to Matt Getz or to Lauren Boebert or any of the 20 who are holding things up because they're, they'll be on television more, they'll be building their personal brands and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, it is true that there's so much money now that if you lose, you can stay in Washington and have an extraordinarily nice life, taking money from this and that group to just stick around and, and lobby or possibly run again. Defeat doesn't seem to dissuade Republicans. I mean, this last midterm should have dissuaded them 
normal behavior would say, we should have have a 30, 40 seat majority. We barely have one now. We could have taken the Senate back. But they aren't doing that kind of examination because they have all this money. They pay no price for their failure. So what I would say there is um, we've had for a long time what uh, I would call the rule of three. It takes three straight big election losses to jolt a party that has gone off the rails back to struggling to sensibility. Um, that's tough to bring off in today's American politics because the president's party usually loses seats in both the House and Senate. And a party that lost the presidency, even one that lost it badly, as the Republicans did in both 2008 and 2012, if they come back and have huge victories in those midterm elections, they don't do any second guessing. It's just around, well, we nominated the wrong guy. Um, or, oh, they rigged the election. Whatever that may be, you've got to lose three before you move from, oops, how could we have nominated that idiot to, oh, we did it again, to maybe it's more than just nominating a bad person. Maybe we have a, a deeper problem. I believe that if the Republicans had lost the House, and indeed the Democrats had picked up some seats, and frankly, what prevented them from doing so in this election was the rigging of congressional districts with the enabling of courts to do so. Example, in Florida, the legislature, operating under a referendum uh, that had tried to make the elections fair, came up with a bipartisan map and the governor, Ron DeSantis, who I call the Victor Orban of American politics, said, I don't like that. I'm going to do my own plan. It's completely contradictory to what the law required. But the Florida Supreme Court, in his pocket, let him do that. That probably cost Democrats three or four seats enough to make up the difference now. In Ohio, we had a commission that came up with a map that the Ohio Supreme Court said was unconstitutional for the state, sent them back to the drawing board. They came back with the same map. The court said no, but they ran out the clock and they had to operate with a slanted map, cost the Democrats at least a couple of seats. The Cuomo administration, Andrew Cuomo in New York, overreached with a ridiculously slanted plan that New York courts with Republican judges, some of whom had been appointed by Cuomo, said, no, we're going to have a, an independent figure draw lines, drew lines that cost Democrats five seats or more. So just those examples. Uh, other states were, you know, slanted, gerrymandered in one direction, in another direction that was pretty much a wash. Uh, Texas, another case where racial gerrymandering to take away power from Hispanics and African-Americans was okayed by the Texas Supreme Court, also a radical right court. If they had lost badly this time, they would have to rethink the position of people like Matt Gates or Jim Jordan would be undercut. You'd have more traction for the you know, sane people in the party. But just winning the House, even by a narrow margin, has taken that to a different place. 
course, the other part of this is the Republicans know that they are in effect a minority party for most elections. And they either have to change their positions and the way they frame things to appeal to a broader group of voters, or they double down on where they are and use voter suppression to continue to win and the ability to do this kind of uh, slanted uh, drawing of district lines that will give them more traction. They know they have the courts behind them now because the Republicans have had engaged in a long effort war to get their uh, judges in place. And if you can suppress the other side's votes, you can still prevail and win. And it's all about winning. I still got to come back to the press question. But I think a better question now is you can't let that 45%, 40 to 45% of the American body politic off the hook. And they vote for these guys. I have reported from societies, totalitarian societies, just coming out where the dictator has just been overthrown in Iraq, in Russia. Dictator wasn't overthrown, overthrew himself. People have no idea about what reality is. But in America, that's not the case. The tribalization of politics, which began 40 year, 45 years ago, I, you can't let the voters off the hook, is, is what I'm saying. And, and what, you're sitting there, you live in America every day. I, I, I've been away since 1985. You know, and I come back regularly to do reporting. That's how we met. But really, I am astonished. And I wonder, again, I come back to when were you aware that American voters had become so susceptible to this? You're a Midwesterner. You're from the heartland. How do you see the, this remarkable change in American society in our lifetimes? First, I've seen it evolve, and I view it with dismay. What I saw with Gingrich tribalizing politics that began in Washington, I watched as inexorably it metastasized out to states. Most of our state legislatures are uh, parallel to what we see now uh, with a tribalized Congress and then to the public as a whole. And it's uh, deeply disturbing and unsettling. We now know that a quarter to a third of uh, Republican voters, those who identify as Republicans, buy into QAnon conspiracy theories. And now that Donald Trump has begun to promote them, that may even be ex uh, expanded. We know that two-thirds of uh, self-identified Republicans still believe the 2020 election was rigged. This is what happens when you, if you become a cult, and and in a tribal world, what it means is you view the other side as evil and trying to destroy your way of life. Now, partly what happens there is, even if it means that you could solve a national problem or help, you don't join with them because that's sleeping with the enemy and it might give them traction and they might win. You have voters who tolerated, including a lot of self-proclaimed evangelicals who deify a Donald Trump whose personal behavior uh, basically flies in the face of everything they protest, uh, profess to believe in. Why? Because if you criticize him, you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And you gravitate to a kind of media that reinforce your hatred of the other side. And that often, the way propagandists work, 
portray things in a way that seems so reasonable and real, what seems to be using real data, that you buy into it. And we know from a lot of studies in psychology, once you believe something, even if there is irrefutable evidence to the contrary, your brain synapses fight against that new perspective. That's not to let anybody off the hook and to take into account that one of the other things that's happened here, Michael, is, uh, and I fall back frequently on what uh, my friend, late friend and mentor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said and wrote in a seminal piece called Defining Deviancy Down, that if you have norms of behavior and their norms are violated and punishment or shame ensues, if you see some of those norms disappear and there are no consequences, that becomes the new norm. And one of the things that's happened since the Obama years is that open rank racism is now acceptable in a lot of quarters. 25 years ago, 20 years ago, if you called somebody a racist, was one of the worst things that could be attributed to anybody. Now, nobody much cares. And voters, many of whom were either racist to begin with or are in fact just unsettled because the one thing they had going for them as working class people was this sense that they were in a privileged class and now that privilege is going away. Whatever it might be, it's now something that is legitimized and not suppressed. And so we're seeing a coarsening of the culture that's bringing out some of the worst things that one could have. And it, they're now the new normal. Here you can get to the press corps, which doesn't do anything seriously to push back against that. I, I, to me, this is um, one of the biggest problems. I mean, language is easy enough to change. And if you know what conservatism is, even if you disagree with it, and you're a reporter, it seems to me you can't use the word conservative to describe what we've been observing the last three or four days, you know, to the Republican conservatives. They aren't conservative. There's no conservatism there. Um, and this is something, uh, and uh, if you follow my Twitter feed, I rail against this every single day. It's a failure, a fundamental and disturbing failure of modern American mainstream journalism. And it's a part of it is the abject fear of being labeled as biased, because what you're ingrained with as a mainstream journalist is that you are not biased, even if you have your own perspective. You know, Len Downey, the longtime editor of the Washington Post, used to brag that he had never voted because the simple act of voting would indicate that he had a point of view. But the whole uh, yeah. theme was we don't express our points of view. Yeah. Um, and the idea that you have a liberal bias is particularly anathematic. So you bend over backwards and basically say, hey, everybody does it both sides. It's the false equivalence that we have often railed against. But what we're seeing now is another phenomenon as well, which is we have careened into an abnormal political process and political party. And we have a press corps that is unable to confront that and they work so hard to normalize abnormal behavior. I know, first of all, Lynn Downey, 
I tell people all the time, before I'm anything, I'm a citizen. And so you should act like a citizen and you should vote. But the other thing is that accuracy is the most important thing. And I speak as a journalist. And so finding the accurate term to describe when a, when a political party has changed as dramatically as the Republicans have, you simply cannot use the same terminology that you might have that you could use with Ronald Reagan or even George W. Bush. You cannot apply those definitions and descriptions to the Republican Party today. It simply is inaccurate, and I don't know why my colleagues continue to to misrepresent and misuse terms because it doesn't inform people and it isn't in any way i think betraying a bias except a bias in favor of accuracy so uh one anecdote when we did the uh book it's even worse than it looks one of the things i wrote was an uh, a balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts the news. And I got a snippy email from a veteran post reporter who's still there saying, our job is to report both sides. And I wrote him back and I said, your job is to report the truth. Sometimes there are two sides. Sometimes there are 12 sides. Sometimes it's evident where we are and it's your job to report that even if it's uncomfortable. So just yesterday, a pretty good reporter named Eugene Daniels uh, was on uh, one of our cable channels and referred to the people around Kevin McCarthy as moderates. And I tweeted, uh, Eugene, there are no moderates. There is not a single one who is a genuine moderate. You could refer to them as traditional conservatives. You might even refer to them as pragmatists to some degree, but they're not moderate and the others are not conservatives. They are radicals. They are radical insurrectionists. There are many other terms you could use for them. Then the Washington Post in its big front page story today on the dynamics around Kevin McCarthy, once again, refers to McCarthy's supporters as moderates. Now, this is not just picking at nits. This is serious business. And it's they do this because this is the frame they've grown up with. You look at a party and you use the terminology and the dynamics that force abnormal behavior into a normal frame. But the problem is that if you continue to do that, it gives legitimacy to illegitimate actors and voters who don't follow this closely look out there and they don't see this as any different from what we had in the past. And that means they can elect crazy people who will throw us into default, who might undercut uh, our support for Ukraine, who might bring rolling government shutdowns, who will keep us from dealing effectively with a pandemic and get them elected because people don't understand how far away from their needs and the mainstream these people are. There's one last question, and it's about the future, but I'm going to frame it this way. I was in Ukraine a couple of months ago to make a program for the BBC, not at the front line. It was a, a cultural program about writers. It, it is heroic what's going on there. 
uh, a struggle that Americans, I think, would do well to study about what is important and precious and worth fighting for. And to be in a country where people so love the idea of what the U.S. is and to follow the midterms and see that actually domestically the country is falling apart in ter- as a society, not as an economy, but, you know, just as a society, the, the extraordinary division that seems to me a, at this point unbridgeable. It, it is a terrible, terrible irony. And I wonder if you see any corner up ahead where things might turn and come back on themselves and some degree of sanity might be, you know, we might just return to a trajectory of sanity and that Washington word that I never thought really existed, comity. It's a word you use, you use a lot, you know, or have done in the past. Um, we have a long and difficult road ahead. Now, having said that, in two years, with a tied Senate and a three to four vote margin in the House, Joe Biden accomplished an enormous amount in a political system that can't act in many important areas, but that managed to do a lot for COVID relief, for desperately needed infrastructure, uh, to try and get more competitive in chips and semiconductors, which is so important in this uh, uh, modern age and in the post-COVID period, and to provide some safety net protection. That's one small bright spot in what is a situation that's going to get worse before it gets better. And what could bring us out of this? Again, I'll go back to the rule of three. Even though Republicans won the House this last time, their performance was dismal and dismaying. They lost hundreds of seats in state legislatures, which is unheard of in a midterm contest where the other party has the presidency. They lost a seat in the Senate. They lost in the critical governorships and positions of uh, attorneys general in the states and secretary of state positions. If they lose the White House, lose back the House, and can't recapture the Senate, the latter being a trickier one, then we might again be able to see dim light at the end of that long tunnel. But, you know, with 30% or so saying violence is an appropriate remedy if your way of life is being threatened, with all the assault weapons and other deadly guns that we have uh, out there, I'm not going to feel relieved or any sense of relief for a long time to come. And of course, if we got a Republican president elected in 2024, it's also dismayed me to hear some of the people on cable news on CNN, for example, uh, saying how presidential Ron DeSantis's speech, uh, inaugural speech at uh, uh, as governor of Florida re-election campaign. This, as I said earlier, Ron DeSantis is America's Victor Orban. And the danger of a Republican president next time is that we begin to move towards a uh, faux democracy. You know, in Hungary, there are elections. On the surface, they seem to be free elections. There's no chance that anyone other than Orban and his ruling party will win. 
there is on the surface an independent judiciary that would never do anything to undercut or challenge the administration. There is, in theory, a free press. But as we've seen in many other societies like Turkey, uh, like Egypt, if you have uh, a newspaper, for example, that goes too far criticizing the leaders, all of a sudden they find staggering tax bills that are due or arrest some of your top editors and maybe even your owner uh, on trumped up charges. And the press corps knows how far they can go in criticism. It's a Potemkin village uh, of a democracy. I fear that. Um, I fear that we could get a Republican president with a pliant Supreme Court uh, having the ability to basically completely undercut uh, our democracy. So the elections ahead become particularly important. And we may go through a series where we always say this is the most important election in our lifetimes, and it's generally dismissed, but where it might be true. Potemkin village democracy. Uh, it's a very good turn of phrase. I'm going to keep it in my mind. Norman Ornstein, thank you very, very much for all your time. I appreciate this. Thank you, Michael. We had to end our talk before I had time to ask about the close connections between the hostage-takers in the Republican Party and the Brexit hostage-takers in Britain's Conservative Party, perhaps in another podcast. My thanks again to Norm Ornstein, and my thanks to you for listening. Remember to visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, where you will find lots more too much on this subject, and much else besides to listen to. And while you are there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.